on the morning of a day in March 2020, maybe you'd rather forget. Without a doubt, one feeling played underneath whatever awful melody of fear and worry played out as we forced ourselves to move through our days, a deep and droning feeling of uncertainty. It was difficult enough for us to navigate through the constantly shifting landscape, but what about entire companies? How many businesses were built to be as flexible and nimble as was called for by the ironically named new normal? as there was nothing normal about it, new or otherwise. It should come as no surprise that so few were, and it's even less surprising that so many of those who made it through 2020 are wishing they were part of that agile few. Perhaps that explains the rise of the agile business structure. Whether you're well on your way to limbering up and preparing yourself for whatever the rest of the 21st century has in store for us, or you're still nodding your head with a blank expression whenever the term comes up at a business lunch, we've got you covered in today's episode of The Fiona Show R&D Tax Credit, because today we're talking all about how an agile structure can fuel innovation activities while building up the resiliency our new old normal clearly demands. To lead us through the potential of agile organization strategy, to lead us through the potential agile organizational strategy has for R&D, I'm passing things off to Lydia Clowney for this conversation, manager of R&D tax credit at Cross Border Solutions. Lydia, you have the floor. Thanks, Matt. And I'm joined today by my colleague, Alan Tobin. Director of R&D and Solution Engineering at Cross Border Solutions. Alan, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Lydia. Very happy to be here as always. Let's start with a high-level overview of the topic. What exactly is an agile business structure or strategy? Well, I wish there was a quick one-line answer. It's a, that's a great question. <laughs> yeah, the definition is pretty comprehensive. An agile method organization structure it's characterized by some or all of really these following elements. And there's a whole bunch that goes into this. It's non-hierarchical, which means it's more collaborative with a higher degree of autonomy for different subgroups or departments. There's a sense of responsiveness. There's fast activity and responses to marketplace and changes in the environment, as well as different consumer demands or trends. Many people are familiar with command and control and top-down patterns of management, but unlike those models, and in agile business structure, there's much more collaboration and autonomy among groups and open collaboration. More diversity and room for people to contribute in their unique and valuable ways. This is in direct contrast to people being forced to adhere to some of their predefined roles. In general, an agile structure allows for more trial and error, experimentation, discovery in terms of different people contributing in very surprising ways, and new ideas coming in from all sectors. In many successful organizations, Everyone feels like they're a part of the process. There's certainly a sense of open communication, a high degree of transparency, rather than nobody knowing who's in the C-suite and how they're operating behind closed doors. Access to the C-suite and key decision makers really be key here. It, it seems like everybody has a voice. Everyone's voice is heard and respected. In terms of goals, an agile structure is very long-term focused, but there's never a loss of focus on providing results in the short term. Short-term experiments are all seen as learning opportunities, no real failure. The key here is that failure creates additional opportunities. In an agile business, there's extraordinary value in responding to change. Rigid plans sort of go out the door. Customization is favored over standard offerings. You can see how there's all sorts of different components that go into that definition, but they all seem 
to be embraced by people that are fast moving, responsive, looking for change, where there's an open environment for collaboration amongst everybody within the organization. No, I see how hard it is to kind of wrap that up into a simple definition. And, and I think that part of the challenge there is that this isn't just a methodology or a process. This is kind of a wholesale culture. And I imagine you really need that buy-in at the very highest levels in order to really implement what, what could be a wholesale culture shift for some companies. How do you get that buy-in from, from say, the C-suite? Another great question. The C-suite has to understand the system as a whole. They have to adapt and really catalyze that style of leadership so it filters down throughout the organization. There has to be that level of experimentation and that failure and the growth of that experimentation, trying and adapting new philosophies and new styles. As you mentioned, it's a different way of business. That open communication style has to be fostered and and nurtured within the organization. Governance is really based upon long-term business values and adaptation. So it's moving away from sort of that rigid focus that corporations typically always had in the 80s and 90s and even the early 2000s. Everybody is seeking mastery within their respective skills, yet everybody's not afraid to touch what's going on in other departments. Again, it comes back to that open sense of collaboration. It seems like it requires a lot of trust in and amongst everyone within the organization as well. You know, even just trust that failure won't be punished, that it will be seen as part of that learning process and part of that, that innovation process. There's no question about that. You know, when you think about sort of the general traits that an agile business would have, they're made up of skillful people, self-aware individuals. Their leaders are full of inspiration. They inspire others to be part of the process. The organization is continuously learning from mistakes and from different growth patterns. And they have that open style of communication. And again, that focus is on the long-term business value. What can we bring to our clients? I know agile business methods can be applied to any industry. We largely see them coming up in in practice in programming or or, tech worlds. Um, But as you're describing the characteristics, it it seems like the methodology really could benefit a a diverse range of R&D activities in all sorts of industries. Before we get really specific about how it applies to R&D in particular, let's say someone running a business hears the opening, say, to this podcast, and they're thinking, (laughs) how can I make my business more agile? How can I implement this strategy? How does a company that maybe has been more rigidly hierarchical in the past, how do they do that? Where do they even begin? You know, that's a great question. And... I think you touched on already, right? You need that buy-in from the C-suite, from upper-level management. It has to be something that filters throughout the entire company. So that's key. And then you can really break down the major elements to strategize and develop this agile business environment into four key elements. You have to establish guiding principles. You know, what are the goals? In this particular case, let's say it's innovation on top of providing a great product to prioritize opportunities. You should develop a roadmap, you know, put a roadmap in place to guide the actions along the way, making sure that you have visibility and transparency throughout the organization. You can't keep it to yourself in the C-suite, which goes back to your point, Lydia, which I thought was great. You have to empower your teams and give them the autonomy to operate to make sure that they can be part of this process and achieve their goals. That sounds great, but what does it mean? Well, you can't have people sitting around waiting for signatures before they can get moving, right, on a particular project. You want to give them the ability to say, here's what we're trying to achieve. Go do it. So it's really cutting through that red tape. 
And, you know, obviously the check-ins, the collaboration, the communication, those are all key elements. And we've touched on them two or three times already, but that's really key to an agile environment. You want everybody within the organization to have the ability to communicate with others. So what are the roadblocks? Depending on the company, there are going to be roadblocks, maybe attitudinal or, you know, philosophical even. What do we see as sort of the main barriers to entry for, for some of these companies to implement this kind of strategy? Well, you know, I, I know one of them is probably one that you're very familiar with. It's really falling in love with what has happened in the past. It's what we know. Things are working great. We don't need to change anything. How does that affect R&D? Well, the spirit of innovation really drives the R&D work, no matter how lucrative the credit may be. And if you're married or you're so wed to the products and processes you already have, why you're going to bother discovering new ones. It sort of puts a cap on the innovation there. Yeah, inertia is a huge problem. And particularly, it seems like in some successful companies that because they've had success in the past, they expect that status quo is going to produce the same success in the future. That's right. And then how do you stimulate that growth and that future innovation? You can't really be risk averse, right? So another blocker is risk aversion. COVID really demonstrated, you know, I mean, many companies realize being risk averse doesn't necessarily mean avoiding activities, which might in the short term seem risky. So when you engage in this sort of discovery, it can lead to, to more new products, increased revenue. It can lead to an entirely new structure within your organization. And it can allow you to adapt with changing externals, which is really key, because it's not only how you're operating within the four walls of your business, but how is the environment around you impacting what you do on a daily basis. And then, you know, we said that communication is key, collaboration is key. Well, what happens if you have poor communication, little collaboration? You're going to have a difficult time becoming an agile business structure unless you change the way you operate. In an agile environment, everyone is part of that process. Your workforce, to an extreme degree, putting people in silos, it's not going to help that process. It's difficult to operate and be effective when you're in silos. Communication within all the departments is essential for the R&D work itself, its results, and then clearly maximize that R&D credit. You know, and, let, and let's be real, if your company doesn't have great and respectful communication throughout the organization, you're probably running an inefficient organization, even in the calmest of circumstances. Oh my gosh, that's so true. And I mean, with pandemic, I mean, right? So many of us kind of white collar industries working from home and trying to figure out a new communication style. So in some ways, it seems like there was a extra hurdle that folks had to overcome, but I imagine you could also look at it as an opportunity that it's forcing these companies that might have been able to kind of stick their head in the sand for a few more years, regard to some of this kind of digital communication or you know, next generation communication to really have to confront it and figure out what are the best ways of, of connecting employees when they're not together in a physical space. And I imagine that really opens the door too. Then you're not constrained by your geography in the same way. And for the best companies, you'd think that that, that would lead to, to more collaboration in, in all sorts of ways. Absolutely. And for the longest time, you know, the saying was you can't teach an old dog new tricks. But here, you know, the old dog is, has to learn new tricks or they're not going to be able to move forward with other successful organizations. And you mentioned this earlier as well. We have to have that buy-in from the top level. If you don't have that buy-in, you're going to struggle in trying to move to an agile environment. The leadership has to lead by example and commit the time, energy, and resources needed to make the company more adaptable, as well as innovation itself. You know, they have to welcome and reward agile thinkers. And that's important. You don't want people to be afraid to raise their hand and say, hey, I have a great idea that I think could contribute to the growth of our company. 
they have to stay involved with leadership. They have to remain knowledgeable and fascinated with sort of the latest innovations that are going on in the field. And I think we're seeing more and more of this. The R&D work itself requires resources, which, you know, has to get allocated by leadership. And you can't even get started without that literal buy-in from the C-suite. You know, really to summarize, I would say be aware of the common barriers, which I think you've touched on a little bit already, Lydia. There's that fear of change. Well, what did 2020 teach us? It told us that if we stay set in our ways, the world could pass us by. It's that fear of loss of control. COVID showed us that we may lose control whether we like it or not. It's the reluctance to embrace top to bottom change. And I think that's key. People have been doing things the same way for decades and change scares people, let's be frank. And abandoned the reward structures, which run counter to teamwork. You know, putting too much emphasis on individual achievement it can have a negative effect on workforce seeing themselves as individuals, not part of a big unit or organism within that corporate structure. That summary is great. And it really speaks to me that this is a shift in values and that there are in some ways a set of core values that accompany an agile strategy. And for a company to really embrace and be successful implementing an agile strategy, their corporate values may also have to shift to really align there, particularly that embrace change concept. So how does an agile approach make a company more resilient? I mean, talking about a crisis like COVID, honestly, if I'm, maybe I'm a little bit of a Cassandra here, but I don't see this as being the last crisis we're going to encounter. Um, So how does a strategy like this help companies work through crises like this and and really continue doing that R&D work that's going to produce the next year's product or process or service? And I guess, are there any differences industry to industry? There are. And, you know, it's a great question because you were the most successful companies during and following COVID-19. They're really the forward thinkers, right? You, you know, you think about Amazon, which got ahead of the curve, ramped up their employment because they knew that things were going to be busy. Mm-hmm. You think about the companies that scaled up their e-commerce capabilities as soon as possible. You think about even the smaller startups or even the existing companies They pivoted very quickly and started ramping up their production of COVID-related products. Think about all the hand sanitizer and the wipes that were created, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, Distilleries, even. I mean, companies I would never have expected would be able to make that adjustment were suddenly producing things that were so topical to the the situation. That's amazing. And, you know, someone there or a group of people there had a great idea. And that ability to pivot is really going to make that company successful, you know. During pandemics, you know, like COVID-19, or as you mentioned, Cassandra, something's going <laughs> to could happen in the future. You know, you have to measure, you know, which is riskier to make fast decisions and try things out and try to overcome these hurdles and position yourself and your company in a place to succeed or to stay the course and do nothing. As you mentioned earlier, sort of that head in the sand bunker mentality and hopefully nothing impacts you. You can't maintain a reactive nature when the world is shifting as quickly, dramatically as it did during 2020. That flexibility and that responsiveness, those successful companies with that, that agile structure really proved key to their success. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. 
Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. different industries. I think you mentioned at the start that there were some differences you saw across various industries. Can you speak to any specifics there? Yes. I don't know if you happened to read that KPMG sponsored report for innovation leaders. Uh, did you happen to read that? Because there's a couple of no, great quotes. No, I missed quotes it. There. Yeah, there's yeah. a couple of great quotes. Okay. Actually, I have it in front of me. There's a couple of great quotes there. You know, in media and telecom, don't wait for calamity. It's a gambler's <laughs> folly to do so, right? That's pretty interesting. In the professional services world, resources held steady throughout pandemic. You know, to me, that's a little bit of a cop-out. I think in the professional services world, the companies that were able to sort of pivot and embrace technology really advance their revenue more than their counterparts. In the food and beverage industry, consumer goods, the commercial side has been through a roller coaster. Well, absolutely, because as we just mentioned, people were spending money on wipes and disinfectants. Remember the whole toilet paper incident, right? You couldn't get toilet paper for about three months. Yeah, no, that area in particular seems like it was a real feast or famine because, sure, toilet paper, I mean, that was selling like hotcakes and the hotcakes weren't even selling. But restaurants, I mean, restaurants were a huge loser. They were a huge loser because they weren't able to really, you know... I'll take that back. Not the entire industry. Because remember, some of the industry was smart enough to start doing curbside delivery. And they were allowing people to order ahead. And then you open your trunk and they put the food in the trunk. So they stayed afloat. I'm not going to say they you know, made more than they normally would. But the companies that did that embraced the technology and they were agile. Now, the ones that just sort of closed the blinds, yeah, they took a big beating. I absolutely agree with that. That's a great point. The quote from the healthcare industry, we've shown that we can innovate rapidly. We have a very tactical mindset. Well, that's great. Now let's take the engineering and construction industry, who we know weren't agile. The results there were overall very negative because initiatives had to be placed on hold until some sense of normalcy returned. And I don't know if there was anything else that they could do, but perhaps during that downtime may have been time where they could have you know, if they had their revenue where they could have focused perhaps a little more on R&D or do something instead of sitting around. But I think what happened within the industry is you just had a lot of layoffs and because the work wasn't there and you had a lot of raw materials and textiles not being used because nobody was hiring. So, you know, a lot of different results from different industries for sure. Yeah, I think supply chain was a real issue for some of those physical, good, heavy industries as well. So that's continuing to be a problem for engineering, for construction, certainly for some manufacturers as well. I know the car market right now is crazy, but you know, I said car market, car manufacturers, and that, that actually kind of leads me into a, another question. Car manufacturers don't typically use an agile strategy. In my experience, they absolutely have their own strategy. Can you talk a little bit about what are some other methodologies, how they differ from what we've just been talking about, about the agile method? Sure. You know, it's very specific in the auto industry. They typically use the APQP, right, which is the Advanced Product Quality Planning Strategy. And it's primarily in that one industry. There's three major phases with some subphases, but those three major phases are development, industrialization, product launch. The key targets, the KPIs here are to secure the quality of a new product during its development, to ensure that only products of a high level of maturity make it to the production phase. 
and they turn around and rinse and spit and repeat, right? They repeat this process in any order. You know, there's specific aspects of APQP, which are great, right? Design robustness. There's significant design testing that's going on. Specification compliance. You talk about production process design, production capacity. You get into packaging. You get into product testing, operator training plan. There's all these different aspects. And, you know, I mentioned there's some subphases. You know, the subphases can be further defined as plan and define program, product design, process design, product and process validation, that's your QC, and then the launch assessment and corrective action. So what does all that mean? Well, it's very successful for R&D, for the auto industry. The focus is clearly lending itself well to R&D work. It's product and quality focused. You're talking about standardized development process. So it translates to many R&D projects, which from an R&D perspective is great because it's easy to track and it's easy to quantify. So you have high quality R&D tax credit claims in this field. Really, one however, though, is it's built on designing quality products for customer satisfaction. And not all of these projects are going to qualify, right? Because just building to appease customer satisfaction, similar to cosmetic changes, they don't always necessarily qualify for the credit. There are some flaws in it as well. It's really hard to see how this can be rolled out into other industries, but it has been very successful within the auto industry. It seems like it really works well for the auto industry, maybe because it's so expensive to actually start producing, say, a car. And so investing so much on the outset of design is a way of mitigating that risk, right? They'd, they'd yeah. rather pour resources into getting it right that first time instead of maybe the agile methodology for, say, a software company where the idea is fail fast and draft some code and see how many holes you can you punch in it. Totally agree. I mean, the, the goal in that industry, right, is to have zero flaws by the time you get to production. So there's definitely a robust process that goes in. It, it does lend itself well to claiming an R&D credit, but I'm just not sure how well it translates into other industries that you mentioned. It's funny, I was just going to say, well, my brain was kind of going on this path of, well, you know, the auto industry, it's much more risky. You know, if they put out a part and it's not perfect, there could be horrible implications. But now that I'm <laughs> actually saying that I feel like a lie in my mouth almost because some of the things we've seen recently with regard to software have been creating huge catastrophes, even just the hacking of the colonial pipeline, right, like that. Right, so, yeah. so maybe I'm talking myself out of that position. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know there's, a, there's other things out there too. You know, you have the sort of the clan culture, right? Which is based on mentorship and teamwork, you know, there's flexibility, there's focus. It's sort of a family style corporate culture. But what happens as you get larger, you try to put more structure within your organization. So it's difficult to maintain as a company grows. But in a clan culture, lower level employees, if there even are such a thing in the clan culture, they have a very large voice. So that's something that works for some organizations. And then you have, you know, your adhocracy culture, right? Which is very risk and innovation focused. And this is where everybody just started raising their head. I got a great idea. I got a great idea. There's an external focus on new ideas and trends. So they're always focused and looking. They're paying close attention to market growth. There's a very strong sense of encouragement for employees to be involved and introduce new ideas. And that has obvious application to the R&D process. Well, the more people there, involved, you know, the more people you're claiming your, their wages for, right? I mean, that seems that's like right. That's that's exactly right. You know, some, but I guess some of the downfalls potentially is too much focus paid on status and notoriety. You know, social media. 
be instead of going for all these huge pie in the sky sort of goals, maybe there's some less impactful initiatives and innovations that are being overlooked. Again, another type of culture, but as every other culture has, not for everybody, and it has its own flaws. Yeah, it would seem like it would be at the risk of relying more on maybe personalities or personal relationships. There could be a risk that the concept of nepotism or or people favoring their own pet projects at the expense of maybe another project that someone else thought of that could potentially be better. Yeah, I would agree 100% with that. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai tpu. Are there others? I mean, gosh. We go on forever, right? (laughs) You have the hierarchy culture, which I think we started this podcast with. We were comparing an agile business structure to really a hierarchy culture, you know. That's kind of like a father knows best kind of thing. That's right. That's exactly right. You know, you have someone who's at the top of the food chain. They know best. You have rigid rankings, top down, always. There's no deviation from that. And it can be very stifling. You could feel like, frankly, that you have a ceiling and there's no career and you're not part of the innovation process. Some people would also say that when you look at Tim Cook at Apple, for example, that hierarchy makes sense. Tim Cook has the singularity of vision, experience, focus. I mean, could Apple operate any other way as an overall company? So certainly some strengths, certainly some flaws with that one. And then, you know, then you have a market culture where everyone is all in on the market access. It's more risk averse but you're less likely to foster innovation in terms of really new ideas. You can still use R&D as a tool for market success, but again, the key here is everyone is just focused on the market and that risk aversion tends to really ramp R&D down. Well, and the market doesn't always know. I mean, you just mentioned Apple, so I've got to say, I mean, we didn't know we needed Apple. We didn't know we needed iPods until they came out, you know, and then we didn't know we needed iPhones until they... Do do we really need them? (laughs) (laughs) We sure feel like we do, don't we? We do. (laughs) Okay, I got to ask, is there a best method? And I mean, even if you say, no, there's no best method, is there a best method for an industry or is there a best method for a company hoping to claim an R&D credit? Like, what should we take away from this? I think that the move in the future is to move toward an agile business venture. But there are certainly components, key components of some of those other structures that we talked about that could be pulled in to really enhance the success. But I, I think the ability to be able to pivot on a dime, to be flexible, 
to have open lines of communication from the C-suite all the way down, and to really value the opinions of everybody within the organization, and to not only to value the opinions, but to act on them if their ideas are great. I think those are really keys to success in the future. We don't know when the next COVID is going to happen. And if it ever does happen, the companies that are able to really change on a dime, right, to, to, to make that pivot are going to be the most successful companies. All right. Everyone knock on wood that that second coronavirus that, that Alan just mentioned. But no, Alan, thank you so much. I had so much fun with you today. Great discussion. So I really appreciate you being here. Oh, as always, thank you, and it was great. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. We want to thank Alan and Lydia for joining us on this very informative discussion. If you like this podcast, you're going to love the other shows in Cross-Border Solutions Tax Podcast Suite. That's the Fiona Show Transfer Pricing and the Fiona Show Tax Provision. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's the Fiona Show R&D Tax Credit, and we'll keep you up to date on the latest in this beneficial credit every week. I'm your host, Matthew DeMello. Andrew O'Donnell is our audio producer. Stephen Markow is our associate producer. Marilyn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We'll catch you next week.